Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Antimicrobial resistance is a global problem related to overuse of antibiotics and lack of development of new ones. Many solutions are entering the market to address the issue. Software solutions to identify, track and predict antibiotic-resistant infections and help prescribers with more accurate prescribing of antibiotics. You can find the link to an interview with the CEO of Obgen, a company doing just that, in the show notes. But today, we're going to dive in antimicrobial resistance from the point of antibiotic development. Antibiotics are not appealing to the pharmaceutical industry from a business perspective. The reason is that new antibiotics are intended for a fraction of all patients. So if you developed a drug that's meant to be used as a last resort for clinicians after they tried all other options, clinicians would more often than not try to avoid using these new medications if not absolutely necessary. Among the problems with antibiotics is the fact that many are very broad-spectrum, used to kill several different types of bacteria. So today, we're going to change the paradigm of antimicrobial treatment. What if you could target harmful bacteria more precisely? You'll hear from Alexander Belkridi, co-founder and co-CEO of the biotech startup Fagomet, which was acquired by BioNTech and renamed BioNTech R&D Austria in October 2021. Fagomet has been researching the field of antimicrobials and also developed an innovative treatment for bacterial vaginosis. And today you will hear about the challenges with the development of antimicrobial therapies and also learn more about Fagomet's journey before the acquisition. This episode is supported by EIT Health Germany, which is one of eight knowledge and innovation communities currently funded by the European Institute of Innovation and Technology. EIT Health Germany connects 150 renowned partners from industry, research and education from Germany, Austria and Switzerland. The unique network helps initiate outstanding innovation in the health sector, So if you're a startup working in the field of digital health or biotech and don't know EIT Health German yet, I would encourage you to visit EIT Health Germany's website where you'll find more about the innovation, acceleration and education programs. Find the link in the show notes. This is one of the 12 episodes this year in which you will hear stories from biotech and digital health startups that have participated in the EIT Health programs. So do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. But now, let's dive to the discussion with Alexander Velkredi. Alexander, hi. The, the focus of, of Faces of Digital Health is usually on digital health and technologies and how they adopt innovation. So the background of the listeners is usually more tech focused. And I thought for this interview, the best thing to do would be to start with a short biology lesson. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about in five minutes, what are bacteria, viruses and phages and how do they relate to one another so we can continue more easily? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks a lot for, for inviting me to the podcast. Um, it's great to be here and share a bit about uh, the technologies that we've been working with in uh, our quest to uh, find solutions for antibiotic resistance that I think affects all of us. So basically, we have bacteria, a huge part of our body. Um, they're part of everyday life. We have about 10 times more bacteria cells in our body than we have human cells. So they're actually quite relevant to us as a species. Bacteria are also not just by themselves an entity in nature, but they also have, have enemies around them. And those enemies are specific viruses that infect and multiply on bacterial cells. And then at the end of that process, kill the bacterial cells. And those are called um, bacteriophages. And so you have that, that very interesting system that nature has devised between the one hand bacteria that, as I mentioned, um, are important for our health in many aspects. If we think about the gut microbiome in allowing us to digest food, and keeping us healthy. They also cause disease, which is where we probably all are most familiar with bacteria. They can cause a wide range of, of infections that then need to be treated. But they also have natural enemies out there, which are these viruses that infect uh, bacteria called phages. Okay. In the last two years, there's been a lot of effort put into a better understanding about the biology related to viruses, viral vectors, mRNA, because the vaccines for COVID were developed with the help of these technologies. But I do want to dive a little bit deeper into what phages are and how you would describe them. There's also a TED talk available made by you in which you said that phages are the superheroes we've been waiting for in the fight against antimicrobial resistance. So maybe you can elaborate that a little bit further. Yeah, sure. I think, first of all, let's focus just briefly on the antimicrobial resistance crisis. What do we mean with that and why do we need superheroes? We've been very successful in combating bacterial infections in the past 50 years because we've developed what's called small molecule antibiotics, so chemicals that are able to kill bacteria and to stop them from growing. And we've all taken antibiotics. They're a huge part of our, our medicine. Any surgery that will be done requires antibiotics to make sure that there are no post-surgery infections down the line that can become life-threatening. And so we've come used to being able to control bacterial infections really easily with antibiotics, except that bacteria have also learned that antibiotics are around, and so they've started developing resistance to the antibiotics, meaning that they can grow despite the antibiotics being present. And we're at the start of a very worrying development where Today already we have, I think it's 30, 40,000 infections every year in the European Union that can no longer be treated with antibiotics, where we just don't have the antibiotics available anymore to treat them. But it's actually getting much worse with every year. And so it, it could potentially make modern medicine as we know it more difficult if we no longer have functioning antibiotics. So if you think about um, a, a, a setting where you need a new liver, you need a new kidney, and you're getting a transplant. Well, during the transplantation processes and also afterwards, the immune system needs to be downregulated so that uh, you can actually cope with the new organ. In that time frame, you're very susceptible to bacterial infections and we need antibiotics to combat them. So if suddenly antibiotics don't work anymore, well, can we still do transplantation surgery the way we do it today? Just one example of, of why antibiotics matter so much. So it's a bit scary to understand that 
we are running out of antibiotics that are still working. And so we need new superheroes in that fight against antibiotic resistance. And definitely phages and phage-derived entities are, are one potential avenue where these could come from. Why is that so? Well, as I mentioned before, phages in nature are the natural enemies of bacteria. They've coexisted with bacteria for billions of years. And how a phage works is it's a virus that can recognize typically the cell wall of specific bacteria. It then injects its DNA into the bacterial cell and reprograms the bacterial cell to start producing lots of new phages. And so that by the time all of these phages are produced, the bacterial cell then expresses so-called lysins, small chemical entities that can open up the cell wall of the bacteria. And at that point, the bacterial cell bursts, releases all of the new phages, all of the new viruses to go out hunting again uh, for new bacteria. And so that's a very powerful mechanic because it does something that we're looking for. You have a natural entity that can kill bacterial cells as part of its replication cycle, and it uses these chemical compounds or these proteins, actually not chemicals, it's biological compounds, the lysins to open up the cell wall, which is also a powerful mechanic. So this is a very interesting space of nature that does something that we urgently need, which is kill bacteria. And it's one avenue that we really need to explore when we talk about how can we find a solution for the antimicrobial resistance crisis. And uh, none of the existing therapies or antibiotics are using phages yet, or? Today, indeed, we don't have phage-based pharmaceuticals on the market. So if we look at how we today treat um, bacterial infections, in many settings, we are talking about um, small molecule chemical um, antibiotics that have been astonishingly successful. They are really one of the reasons of why we live so long today. So if you just go back uh, to the 1940s, a lot of people were, well, not a lot of people, but compared to disease, you had mortality from bacterial infections such as syphilis, where today we don't know mortality from that kind of an infection because we have antibiotics that we can use to treat it. So it's difficult to, to overstate the impact that antibiotics have had on our medicine. And so seeing that go away is scary and we need new developments and new avenues to be explored. You actually have one therapy already in the development, an active endolysing called PM477 for the treatment of bacterial vaginosis. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Which stage of clinical trials are you currently in? When do you anticipate that something like this could be on the market? Mm -hmm. So PM477 is a synthetic lysine that uh, we developed in Vienna on the basis of our lysine builder platform. Basically, it is a, a protein that is able to specifically recognize the cell wall of a group of bacteria called um, Gardnerella bacteria, and then um, able to open up the cell wall of these um, bacteria, which kills them. So Gardnerella bacteria play a role in exactly one space on earth, and that's in vaginal infections. They are the pathogen behind the most common vaginal infection called bacterial vaginosis. Vaginal infection is not talked about a lot, but it needs to be talked about a lot more. For bacterial vaginosis, it's estimated that one in four women of reproductive age will have bacterial vaginosis 
at a certain point in time. And here again, today we use um, antibiotics to treat the infection, which have a number of, of limitations. One is we again see very fast resistance formation, women suffering from bacterial vaginosis over and over again because the bacteria have become resistant to the antibiotics um, that we use. But we also have the other part of antibiotics, which um, we also need to talk about, which is most antibiotics are broad spectrum. They can't discriminate between the good bacteria in our microbiomes and the bacteria that we need to kill. And uh, that's one thing that we're also uh, a lysine, for example, can be a path to have a more effective antibacterial agent, but also a more precise antibacterial agent, because it's able to recognize only a specific cell wall structure. In the case of PM477, it recognizes the Gardnerella cell wall. It does not recognize the lactobacilli cell wall, which the lactobacilli, obviously, the key beneficial bacteria in the vagina. So PM477 is um, a synthetic lysine that we're currently developing for the treatment of bacterial vaginosis. It's now in preclinical studies, and we hope to initiate first clinical trials in, in 2023. So basically, it's a very targeted therapy, right? It's extremely targeted, which is the conceptually the the great advantage and the great disadvantage of phages and phage-based therapeutics, yeah? because everything comes obviously with trade-offs. The big advantage is we have a tool with which we can really custom, make custom interventions into our microbiomes. We can kick out the one bacterial species or genus that we don't want there and preserve the rest. The disadvantage is obviously if we don't know who we are fighting, we will still need broad-spectrum antibiotics. So in preventing infections from surgical diseases, we also urgently need new chemical antibiotics that act broad-spectrum because I can't know in advance which bacteria is going to cause the problem. But where I have these settings um, with infections that are always reliably traced down to one agent, or in many cases traced down to one agent, uh, such as in bacterial vaginosis, their precision medicine approach just makes much more sense. You mentioned before uh, the problem of antimicrobial resistance, the fact that this problem is increasing at the same time. The big challenge in tackling this is that there's not enough development happening in the space of antimicrobial development because of several reasons. In theory, even if you had a new strong antibiotic, if it's not super targeted, you would want to save that as the last resort for treatment, which, you know, for the pharma industry means that it's not profitable. So I want to learn a little bit more about your company specifically. How did you go about addressing antimicrobial development while being aware that from the financial perspective, that's potentially not very interesting for um, investors? So I think that there's obviously many different facets to that. I think for us, the important thing was finding a medical need that exists today, where the current antibiotics are not just facing resistance issues, but are also ill-suited in the first place. And they're obviously intervening in a microbiome that is as delicate as the vaginal microbiome um, is there you have a huge advantage of using a targeted pharmaceutical. And so we, from the beginning, set out to find indications where we felt that the standard of care as such can be improved. And we definitely are continue to be convinced that in bacterial vaginosis, there is lots of room to improve the standard of care. And by looking for these 
um, a bit islands within bacterial infections, we do think that there are very attractive business cases to be had. Having said, that's only half of the solution. Because as I mentioned before, for certain settings, you will continue to need last resort antibiotics when we can't do a precision intervention or when we don't have time to do a rapid diagnostic. So if I have a bloodstream infection and I'm, I have hours to live, I can't spend time precisely identifying which bacteria it is. I need a quick and broad spectrum solution. And there you have exactly the problem that, that you mentioned, which is if I develop a great antibiotic, will it be used? And I think that's a question for policymakers. I know that there's a lot of discussion happening around that, also at sort of G8, G20 type of, of settings where um, subscription models, for example, need to be discussed. For us as a company, given that we were only working on precision interventions, precision antibacterials, we were able to focus on specific use cases where we believe that there is a, a viable, strong medical need and a viable, strong business case that can be addressed. Are you currently working or researching any other indications as well or strictly focusing on this problem and the clinical trials that still are underway? So bacterial vaginosis is our lead program, our, our lighthouse program, because it very nicely shows that the benefits of using um, synthetic license in a sort of targeted, precise manner also versus the existing antibiotics. We have developed a, a whole technology platform behind that. And you mentioned that the original focus of this podcast is, is more on digital. But I think that in biotech, many of the technologies that we use and that help us to be successful are fundamentally digital. We need to sequence almost everything that we do. We use machine learning, AI to predict how our drugs should look like and then to optimize them. And so if we go back to the core of, of how we discover and develop our, our compounds, our, our drug candidates, it is digital in the sense that we use an algorithm to predict in silico, so on the computer, how the structure of our license could look like, where we integrate all of the knowledge about the natural ones that we find on phages, but also go beyond that by understanding which structures work well. And so from there, we can then address many different bacterial pathogens. And we're also working on a number of other indications that I unfortunately can't really disclose yet. Mm -hmm. Last year, I had a very interesting interview with the CEO of Obgen, which developed cloud-based software to identify, track, and predict antibiotic-resistant infections to help doctors treat infections more accurately with the appropriate antibiotic instead of using just something that's very broad spectrum. And you already started explaining what kind of technologies you use, but I want to just go into that a little bit further because phages uh, as, as superhero-ish as they are, I imagine that they're also, they have a special production requirement. So how do you, how is technology impacting that? What's the production line cycle or process for that? And what's the role of technology in that? So I think technology is the, it's the fundament beneath all of that. So I always take the example of to really understand precision interventions, you, for example, need to sequence the microbiome and to understand which bacteria are there. And just that sequencing, if I go back 10 years, you just couldn't do that in research on multiple patient samples because each sequence and run would cost you a couple of thousand of euros. Uh, and that's just not viable. Whereas today you can do that same sequencing run for maybe 30, 40 euros. And then suddenly you can actually learn a lot from many different patient probes. So that's just one 
maybe very concrete example of how just maybe 10, 15 years of technology have made a huge difference in what we can actually do in the lab and, and how we can develop pharmaceuticals. Now, if we go to production, phages are typically produced in, in fermentation on bacteria because after all, they multiply by using bacteria. And for the lysins, so the more the recombinant proteins, there we typically use bacteria cells to express the proteins themselves. But in both cases, it's hugely guided by, by technology. Again, for example, then at the end, just the quality control of can I sequence and can I actually find what I wanted to produce in my, my final material. In November last year, you were acquired by uh, BioNTech and now operate as R&D um, in Austria. But I want to also talk a little bit more about the journey uh, you went through up until today. We mentioned how specific the development of antimicrobials is and is it interesting for investors or not? So I want to get your story behind that. How did you approach searching investors? Which startup competitions you would go to? What kind of programs you would get involved to? Because for startups, it's very important to manage time as efficiently as possible. And sometimes these endeavors require a lot of effort and are not necessarily reasonable, but you really were successful in so many competitions and programs. Can you tell us your thinking behind those involvements? So I think that as a small company, where typically as the founding team, you will have some experience in the field that you're operating in, but you're, you've not done it for 50 years. And so building networks, finding others who have gone that way, talking to people, and ultimately also then finding the ones who believe in you, that's hugely successful. And so if I look at our own journey and the fundraising that we did, the investors that we were able to get to the table, typically it all had a networking element to it because we met these people, we were able to convince them and then move forward. And so I think that being part of competitions is a way to supercharge that networking because you're in front of a, a crowd, you get feedback from expert judges and you can integrate that feedback again into performing better at the, the next competition that you do. So we were extremely lucky to, to be able to be part of the, the EIT Health Catapult, which is um, one of the, the key EIT Health programs, where we went through three stages of competition around us as a company, our solution that we were doing, and we were facing off against uh, other fantastic biotech companies across Europe. And I think that as one example of a great competition had a huge impact on us because it forces you to um, really think about how do I present myself in four minutes. It forces you to bring clarity around your approach, um, your indications, um, the data that you can show, but you also get great feedback. You meet judges, you meet other investors, they give you feedback that you can learn, but also you also see your peers. And often your peers do some things just fantastically well. And we were never ashamed to then just plug great ideas, great introductions, great ways of showcasing your team or your data and learning from other companies, be it also biotech or be it digital health, and then integrating that in, into our own experience. And so I think I can only recommend for companies that are forming and that are going through the process of growing as a startup to seek out competitions that matter um, and really use them because it's a great opportunity to grow as a company. And then if you actually get to the point where you're successful and, and you win something, no matter if it's prize number one or prize number five, it's also a great reward for the team because ultimately the team is what, what delivers the data 
the product, the iterations, and it's great for them also to see that sort of what comes out of it, the story that comes uh, is so successful that it then brings back a, a prize, something to hang on the wall uh, and then share and celebrate. And um, it's not just about taking part in this in the early stages, maybe when you don't have a product yet or when you're in the seed stage. When it comes to EIT Health, you actually participated in two programs. So one was the EIT Catapult that you mentioned, and then you were also a part of the Gold Track program. How did you look at that, continuously going to, to programs? How do they differ how do you search for the right one for the right stage that the startup is in? I think as a startup, you always need to explore. You need to look at, at different opportunities and you need to explore. And for many of these, we probably could have stopped at any point in time if we, we didn't feel that it was really valuable or we could have reduced our, our efforts on, on one space or the other. But it's it, it always makes more sense to to try and, and to add an opportunity to your list than to just shy away from it in, in the beginning. So I think we, we always looked at the different competitions that were ongoing, the different mentoring programs, and we asked, Is it does it sound interesting? Are we going to learn something? Is it going to provide help in, in our path? We also asked, is, it, is what's expected of us, is that realistic? We, for example, didn't consider joining uh, programs that required equity upfront because we didn't feel that would be uh, sort of a worthwhile well, setting, whereas we did enter programs where there was a success element at the end, as in the case of the Gold Truck program, because we felt that's quite aligned. Yeah, If we're successful, then it's fine to share uh, a small part of that success back into the program. And if we're not successful, then uh, essentially, then also the value that we got out of it wasn't enough to bring us to, to a successful state. And the third one was that we also always looked at what's the time commitment that's going to be required from the team and is it commensurate to to where we are so i know that for the health catapult that was a quite easy decision because it did require involvement but it was slightly limited to the senior team and, uh, and we felt that was something that we could easily deliver for the gold track program which for those who don't know it is a business acceleration and mentoring initiative where a very small number of health tech startups are selected and then receive mentorship and guidance from industry veterans. And if you were saying industry veterans, I mean, it, these are partners from top VC firms. These are entrepreneurs who've themselves built big ventures. So it's really high caliber interactions. And when they first approached us in mid-2019, we declined to apply because we were just scaling the company again, and we just didn't have time. We didn't have time mm -hmm. to, to engage with these high-caliber mentors. But then in, in May 2020, so it's what eight months later, we felt that we were in a good place now. We had a very stable, strong, expanded management team, and we actually had the time to devote uh, to it. And then it was a big part of ultimately also our success because it, was, it, it forced us to tackle some of the big strategic questions that we had all along and to really drive the next wave of development, which ultimately also then led us into the, the exit case, which was the, the acquisition by BioNTech. I'm going to add the both links. So for the EIT Catapult and the Gold Track program to the show notes for anyone um, that's listening and may 
potentially uh, think that programs would be interested for them since this is not only for biotech, it's also for digital health, startups and companies. Plenty of opportunities for sure. Going one step back again to, to the technology and the role that it plays in your uh, development, how did things for you changed in that sense with the acquisition by BioNTech? Do you now have access to more equipment, more laboratories? How, just from that perspective, what has changed? So I think, first of all, I think we're all extremely excited to now be part of a, a company with BioNTech that has a very big vision and mission, which is to really push the boundaries of human health. And there, we're excited that we get to play a part in it, which is to help bring antibacterial agents into this this great company. If you ask what has changed, surprisingly, maybe uh, not that much in the sense that the team is still in place. We still sit in the same office and lab in Vienna and we drive our research forward. We continue to have the same lead program, all of these elements. In the background, obviously, a lot of things have accelerated. We spent much less time on fundraising because that's covered now. But the core of our, our mission and the core of what we're trying to push forward here, that's very much the same. One last question for you. You're based in Austria, you work in Vienna. So I wonder how would you describe the environment that you work in terms of Maybe we can start actually with the healthcare system because Austria is currently in the European news because now you actually have obligatory vaccination for everyone older than 18. Maybe your experiences with the healthcare system and just a broad overview that you could give in a few sentences. So I think that in terms of the healthcare system, I think it's quite similar to many European countries. There's a social security system that provides a basic but good level of healthcare. And then there's obviously always options to go beyond that. But in general, there's free and open and equitable access um, to healthcare. I think on the, the vaccine mandate, that's probably going to be in place from the, the 1st of February. And I think it's a response to the low vaccination rate uh, that we've seen in Vienna across certain age groups, which makes dealing with the pandemic, uh, even though we have no clue how it proceeds from today's point, slightly more challenging than maybe in other countries where vaccination rates, especially in the above 60s, are quite high. So that's maybe a response to that. But I think that in, in general, Austria and Vienna, if we, we go back to building a digital health, building a medtech, building a biotech startup, it's actually a great location and that has a, a multiple different facets to it. I think the first one is the amount of grant funding that is available here is actually very high. So if I think about throughout the, the history of our company, we've been able to co-fund between 50 and 60% of our expenses with grants from different grant agencies in Austria. And that's a very strong leverage to the private investment. And the way grants typically work in Austria is that if you're working on high tech programs, you can get co-funding by the government. So the government will not give you um, the entire amount that you need, but they will co-fund depending on the program, 50, 60, 70% of what you do. And so with a euro of private investment, I can typically spend three euros in actual research. That's a fantastic co-funding rate. And I think that's under talked about in the European ecosystem. The second part is Vienna in particular is just a fantastic city. And now I'm biased 
because I live here, but then also we can turn to rankings by The Economist and other publications, which consistently state the fact that Vienna is a great city to live in, and it's also still a quite affordable city. So there's a lot of social housing, there's a lot of um, projects to keep the city affordable um, for everyone, and that means that it's quite easy to attract to come to Vienna. So we have great healthcare and life science talents here because there are big universities, there are great research institutes. But we've also had a lot of colleagues join us from different European countries who were excited to be part of our mission and our company, but also felt very comfortable with the idea of moving to Vienna uh, and spending a couple of, of years here. And then I think the the final part is that, as I mentioned, there are uh, on the talent side, these great clusters in Vienna. So we're part of the Vienna Biocenter, which is uh, five research institutes. It's the life science department of the University of Vienna, but then it's also 40 biotech companies, all in a very small part of town. And that's also fantastic because it creates a very innovative atmosphere. You can access others, you can gain expertise, and we've certainly benefited a lot from being part of the, the Vienna Biosystem ecosystem. So it's a I think it's an underrated spot for healthcare innovation in Europe. Is there anything that you would say that you miss or wish was different when it comes to healthcare innovation and support in Europe? Just anything that comes to mind, given how awesome Vienna is. <laughs> As usual, there are always sort of other aspects um, to it. Yeah. So one aspect is that for sure that in Vienna, we don't have as many big pharmaceutical or established large biotech companies than maybe other places in, in Europe have. Yeah, I think we also in Europe, we do still have maybe in some cases lower visions or lower ambition levels compared to other places in the world where typically you aim for the stars immediately and then you go big or, or you go home. Having said that, on the other hand, in Europe, we tend to, to start things and do them very methodically and make sure that uh, we do them in a sustainable way. And so I think that's a big strength of the, the European ecosystem. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. This was one of the 12 episodes that will be published this year about startups that took part in programs by EIT Health. If you're interested in learning more about that, visit the website of EIT Health Germany in the link in the show notes. Stay tuned. Oh, 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 oh,